Welcome to RUF. If you just stumbled in and you don't know what RUF is, um, RUF is a campus ministry where every student is invited to encounter Jesus, to explore faith, to enjoy community, and to be empowered to change. And we say this is for every student, and what we mean by that is whether you are a convinced Christian or you're a convinced skeptic or you're curious, you're not sure what you believe, um, whatever background you come from, ethnic background, religious background, um, cultural background, geographic background, we want this to be a place where every student at Wake Forest um, can come and encounter Jesus and figure out what they believe and why they believe it. So we're glad that you're here. Wherever part of campus you're coming from, whatever your week's been like so far, um, we're really glad that you're here. Um, So this semester, what we've been doing, this is just week two, we're reading the book of Ephesians together, and this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he wrote it around AD 62, so within the first century, about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Um, And as we're reading this letter together, my hope, what we're going to do is we're going to see how um, this letter addresses our our particular cultural moment, where we are right now. Um, So to get started tonight, I want you to do this. This is an icebreaker. I just want to turn to your neighbor and answer this question. Um, What was the last selfie you took and what was it and who was it for? So to give you a little background about the letter that we're reading together, um, Paul was a Jewish man, a Jewish um, rabbi, and he had traveled to this city of Ephesus, which is a modern-day Turkey, and he first arrived in the middle of the first century. He got around there around 52 AD, and in the book of Acts, which is a, a book in the Bible that tells the story of the early church, we read that when Paul arrived in Ephesus, um, he told people about Jesus, what he did. What an apostle is, um, Paul calls himself an apostle, and that's somebody who has experienced something and then tells people about it. And Paul experienced, he had an experience of the resurrected Jesus, and he was telling people about it. So he arrives in Ephesus to tell people about Jesus, tell them that he's resurrected and that Jesus is the true God, and then a riot breaks out in the city. Now, why would a riot break out in response to this message? Well, what he did was he told people publicly in the city that gods made with human hands are not actually gods. Now, why would this be a big deal? Well, Ephesus was the home of, to the temple of Artemis, or in Roman mythology, this is Diana. Um, the, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so this city's economy was a tourist economy. People came to Ephesus, Ephesus to worship at the temple of Artemis. And so there were all these um, street vendors who would make these little trinkets. You know, when you go to the Eiffel Tower, you get a little Eiffel Tower keychain or um, the you know, Statue of Liberty refrigerator magnet. That sort of thing, but 2,000 years ago. And um, these little trinkets that were made by the silversmiths were part of the worship. That if you had one of these trinkets, you could somehow be connected through, the, through this, this little god, this little t- mini temple to Artemis and worship her through it. And so when Paul arrived in Ephesus and he began proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the one true God and that God's made with human hands, like the trinkets and like the temple to Artemis, um, itself, saying that they weren't gods, the, the merchants who sold these trinkets broke out in a riot. And this is, this is from Acts 19. Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, who turned a huge profit with the other artisans, he gathered them all together and said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. 
You also see in here that not only in Ephesus, but the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number, number of people by saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned. She will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. So the culture that Paul is writing into, um, this is the culture. And now we don't have a temple of Artemis, um, but something that's true of us in, in late modern secular America, even though we pretend it's not true, um, everyone worships. This is true of every human worships. This is a, I want to read you a quote from a guy named David Foster Wallace, who was a novelist and a college professor, um, and he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and he, he said this. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Friends, everyone worships, and we're all religious. And religion is the business of appeasing gods. Um, I just read this great book called Recapturing the Wonder by a guy named Mike Cosper, and he says this about religion. He says, in the old days, you take some unfortunate animal to a temple, you give it to a priest, and the priest would dispatch of it for you before the watchful eyes of whatever god or goddess or demigod was in attendance. Hopefully, if the animal was in good enough condition, or if the god, goddess, or demigod was in good enough of a mood, then the priest would return with a blessing, sending you on your way with the knowledge that you have satisfied him. If you were a true believer, the whole thing was done with a lot of love and care and attention. And although most of us don't attend temples or make flesh and blood sacrifices, the religious impulses that drive all that activity are deeply human and inescapable. And he says that we're still doing it. We're still offering these religious sacrifices. This is what he writes. He says, these days our sacrifices are virtual. We take an image, we type up a few thoughts, We edit and crop and shape them until they're just right, the finest specimen we can offer, and we extend them via digital mediators to a pantheon of little gods that wait to judge our work. And if we gain their favor, they award us with likes and favorites and comments and reposting. If not, the results can be the pain of echoing silence, or worse, we might incur their wrath. I mean, that's it, right? Like, that's why I use social media. And when I first read that, that just, that just exposed me so much that this is what I'm doing. This is a religious transaction. And he goes on to this. He says, so much energy goes into curating online personas. Kim Kardashian, who he calls the patron saint of social media, once said that she needs 1,200 selfies per day. 
in order to get the good ones that she can post online. I actually was reading about her, and it turns out she took a break from social media in June of last year, and it's like, oh, she had some sort of, like, like oh, come to Jesus moment, like, oh, I probably shouldn't do this. And it turns out it's because her doctor told her to stop because her wrist was hurting from holding her phone so much. All right, so she's extreme. I know that. Um, but she helps to us to see the promise of social media, right? This, this promise that we can carefully select, edit, display the best version of ourselves to the world. And even if you're listening to this and you're thinking, that's not me, I don't use social media, right? You still do this, right? It's present in your anxiety that you felt when you walked into Rush or when you thought, um, or the anxiety that you felt when you thought about going to that party or not showing up to that party, that dread you felt. It's what you feel when you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like what you see, wishing there was something different. There's something deep within us that is unsettled. And we want to appear to the world as better, more dignified, more desirable, something more beautiful and clever than what we see in the, in the mirror. And if we're honest, we're anxious people, covering our flaws, shaping our image, straining to present an acceptable version of ourselves to the world around us. And friends, this is just a symptom of a deeper issue. We don't just want to appear pretty or skinny or smart. We want to be good. We want to be acceptable. We want to be lovable. We want to know that we're approved. And so in trying to make sense of our own brokenness, we get religious. So Ephesus had Artemis. And in our secular world, we have our own man-made religions. And what all religions share in common, whether it's the Ephesian Greeks or Chairman Mao's communism to the disciples of CrossFit, Um, is this sense that the world is neatly divided into those who are in and those who are are out. The in-group has found enlightenment. They adhere to a right moral code. They make the right blood and sweat sacrifices. And then the other people are out. And what we see through human history is that religion isn't the the answer. It isn't the solution to the problem of sin and evil. It's actually the cause. It's the source of sin and evil. And into our man-made religions... God speaks. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at what he has to say in Ephesians chapter 2 to see how God has put an end to our religion. So if you want to turn there with me, it's printed on the back of the bulletin. Um, We're going to read Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. Or cycle bar. It's another religion. I got this. I've never been. If anyone wants to take me, I'll go with you. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true and it is given to us in love. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So there's a a pastor in the 20th century named um, Jack Miller who is famous for this saying. Uh, He used to say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. And you're more loved in Christ than you ever dare hope. So I just want to use that as our outline for tonight because that seems to be what Paul is saying in this passage. Cheer up. You are far worse. You're a worse sinner than you ever imagined. But in Christ, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. So we're going to start with the bad news, that you are a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And just to warn you, what Paul says here is really bad news. Um, Finding out that you are dead is bad news. And Paul is like a good doctor in this, that he, like a good doctor who's delivering a terminal diagnosis, right? He just says it. He reveals it. He just says it. He tells the whole truth. He doesn't shade details because he doesn't want to upset you. He wants you to know the truth. And he says that you are dead, you were dead because of your sin. This is verses 1 through 3. He gives us this terrible realism. And now it's easy to read this and think that Paul is just being pessimistic, but he's not. He is describing the darkness of the human condition. Paul says that people, apart from the work of God, are spiritually dead, and because of this they are children of wrath. And I know this sounds crazy. I know that this, is, this sounds deeply offensive, but here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that sin has corrupted humans to the point where we are unable to take a single step towards God. Not because God is restraining us, but because of how bad our sin is. And this is bad news. Like You were dead. And this means that you are actually deceiving yourself if you think that you're able to reach God on your own. Paul is saying that you were dead and you cannot choose God. Think about it like this. Let's, um, let's say you come into RUF one Tuesday night, and I'm lying on the floor terribly sick. And you come up to me and say, hey, John, will you go to the pod to get me some gum? And because I want your approval so bad, I drag myself on my stomach out the door through the lobby, out the doors on the bricks to the pod, reach up with my card, and um, ask for some gum and bring it back to you. Um, it's really hard to do because I'm so sick, but I'm able to do it. But let's say you come in one Tuesday night, so hope this never happens, and I'm dead on the floor. <laughs> and you told me to get you some gum. There would be no response. And this is what our fall into sin is like. We are unable to obey. We are unable to obey because we are spiritually dead. And this is why our man-made religions never work. This is why all the attempts to perfect yourself never work. Why when you kill yourself in the gym and you kill yourself in the library, you still aren't satisfied. This is why Kim Kardashian takes 1,200 selfies a day. And why Tim Brady, Tom Brady will not be, I don't know why I said Tim Brady, who's that? Um, <laughs> did you all see this interview? In 2005, Tom Brady did an interview on 60 Minutes, where this was after he won his third Super Bowl. And he was asked about it, what it felt like. And he just talked about the emptiness of winning a Super Bowl ring. And so the, and the, the interviewer asked him, he said, which ring is your favorite? And he said, ah, the next one, I guess. Well, he's going for number six. And it was so interesting watching the game on Sunday night that after he won, how excited he was. I mean, he did just, it was a great game. But he's been there. He's been there five times, and he knows that it's empty. But he's going back. This is why man-made religion doesn't work. You will never, if you worship success, you will never be successful enough. And this means that... Um, that we must depend entirely on God for salvation. This means that the work of salvation isn't divided 99% God's work and 1% our work. 
It means that it's 100% God's work. So the bad news that you are a far worse sinner than you could ever imagine, you're actually dead. And then Paul paints this really grim picture in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. It's this like walking dead, like the, like the zombies following the course of the world, following the prince of the air. It's this image of, of humanity um, walking dead in shackles to the world and to Satan, just following in a death march. And what is the result of this? Verse 3, you, like the rest of mankind, were by nature children of wrath. And now when we hear wrath, right, when we hear this word, we think that God must not be good, that somehow he's this capricious toddler who takes out his anger on, on a whim. But God's wrath is not a bad temper. It's not spite or malice or animosity. It's not revenge. It's never arbitrary because it's the divine reaction to only one situation. It is the divine reaction to evil. John Stott, um, who's a commentator, wrote this. He says, therefore, it is entirely predictable. God's wrath is entirely predictable. It's never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Further, it is not the impersonal outworking of retribution in society. It's not just cause and effect out there in the universe. It's God's personal, righteous, constant hostility towards evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. Further, his wrath is not incompatible with his love. We need, I think, to be more grateful to God for his wrath and to worship him because his righteousness is perfect. He always reacts to evil in the same unchanging, predictable, uncompromising way. And without his moral constancy, we would enjoy no peace. Friends, God's wrath is actually good news because it shows that God is actually a God of justice. His righteousness is perfect. He reacts to evil the same unchanging way. And if God could not or would not bring perfect justice to the wrongs of human history and to the wrongs that we've experienced in our own lives, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. And I know this sounds crazy. I mean, why would our man-made religion deserve wrath? Well, if we are made in God's image, which we are, and God designed us to find our life in him, which he did, then if we try to find our life anywhere else but in him, that is nothing less than cosmic treason. So Paul gives us the bad news, but in the same breath, he gives us the good news. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved in Christ than you ever dared hope. The good news of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Christ, begins with these great words in verse 4. But God. So what God's doing with this, this but God, um, is that he is, speaking, he is speaking into the tragedy of sin and death. God is spe- Paul is speaking into the tragedy of sin and death. And this is John Stott again. He says, these two monosyllables, but God, set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. We were the objects of his wrath, but God, out of his great love with which he loved us, had mercy on us. We were dead and dead men do, do not rise, but God made us alive in Christ We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness, but God has raised us with Christ, set us at his own right hand in a position of honor and power. Thus, God has taken action to reverse our condition. Paul is saying that God has brought us from death to life. And being made alive is 100% God's work. This means that if you are a Christian and you're here tonight, you can take no credit. You being a Christian has nothing to do with your goodness. 
It has nothing to do with your earning. And that just smacks in the face of our man-made religion. And here's why this is such great news. Because this is, this is God's work and not yours. That means that you can exhale. I talked about this last week. That you can't screw this up. This is not on your shoulders. This is not another box for you to check. It doesn't require an interview. You don't have to go study for it. You don't have to look a certain way to get in. God doesn't care who your parents are, what grades you got, or where you went to high school, or what sorority you were in or not in, or what you're doing, where you're doing your summer internship, or where you grew up, or what clubs you're the president of, or where you're buying your clothes. He doesn't care about any of it. This isn't about your goodness or your beauty. It's not about your badness either. Your salvation has nothing to do with what you bring to the table and everything to do with God's mercy to you in Christ. And it is by grace alone. And it is received from love. Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Being made alive is a gift of love. Paul says that God's response to our death is that he made us alive. And this is a gift of love. Um, Greg Thompson, who's a pastor, says this. He says, this is so important for Paul. Everything about you is a gift from God. Everything about you, the shape of your face, the contour of your laugh, your life with God, your life with others, all is a gift given to you in love. And you know that we turned away from God and sin. This is as true for me as it is for you. In sin, we saw the life and we wanted it, but we didn't want to receive it. We tried to go out and get it. And this is our man-made religion. Man has been trying to make his way up to God since the beginning. Our religious attempts to get life on our own is death. And God wants us, he wants to restore us to life in love. Friends, this is not something you grasp, not something you achieve, but something that you receive. And we see it most perfectly in Jesus. In Jesus, you see God coming to give life and love to all who will receive it. And ultimately, he gives life to the dead. We see it in his death and resurrection we see, it, we see the promise of life given to you in the love of God. I mean, look at the text with me. Look at verses 4 and 5. Who is the actor here? Who is the actor? Look with me. It's God. God who is rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you see what he is saying? He's saying that God has come to you in love. Again, in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, so you cannot boast. Paul is making his point. The life we have is given to us. And what we do is we receive. Right? We cannot earn this. We cannot achieve it. We receive it. And the life is not only received from love, but it's received in Christ. The life that Paul talks about comes to us as we're joined by faith to the life of Christ and our union with him. We're united to him. And I know that this concept of being united to Christ, being a union with Christ is confusing to some. Let me remind you what it is that Paul believes. Paul believes that before time, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in perfect union and perfect communion. He is three and he is one. Christians believe that God is three and one. And we, made in God's image, were created for communion. He made us to participate in him. And creation is fundamentally an act of invitation into intimacy because God is our true home. Now, when sin entered the world and our first parents were exiled 
from God, exiled from Eden, humans stopped participating in God. And the promise given to us is that God himself is going to come and restore us back to union with him, to restore our intimacy with him. He promises to bring us home. This is why Moses, this is why Moses led Israel out of Egypt. Why did he do this? So that he might meet with God on Mount Sinai. We're told Moses meets with God. He spoke to him like a man, as like a man talks with a friend. This is why Joshua leads Israel into the promised land because God is there. This is why Solomon builds the temple so that God can come and dwell there. And union does not fully come until it comes in Jesus. In John 1, we read that God has took on flesh and come and dwelt among us. What is the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples? Come, come. This is a creational word. word. Let there be you and me together. Follow me. This is why Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. This is why Jesus, Jesus beckons to us. He beckons to you. Come to me when you are weary, when you are thirsty. I will give you rest. Eat and drink from me. Life is not received on a mountain or in the land or in the temple. It's received in Jesus. And Paul wants us to understand that it's in union with Jesus that we are brought into life with God. This is verse 5 and 6. You were made alive together with Christ. When he was raised from the dead, so were you. Your life comes in his resurrection. And he is seated in heavenly places in Christ. I don't know what this means. This is confusing to me. This is Jesus' ascension. He is somehow seated in heaven. And somehow you are seated with him in heaven. Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That he, he walked on earth for 40 days. And that he ascended into heaven And that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And just as Jesus ascended into heaven, so have you, if you're united to him by faith. You are part of this kingdom. And in the coming ages, he will show to you the immeasurable riches of his grace. What is Paul doing here? I think what he's talking about here is the final judgment. That in the final age, when the judgment comes, you will be shown not wrath, but kindness because of your union with Jesus. The life you have received is not just from God, but in Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, and finally his return. God is saying here, you don't need self-improvement. You need to come home. So a question for you to consider as you go home tonight. What areas of life, of your life, do you want to see go from death to life? In your own life, as you live it, what areas do you want to see go from death to life? How might this happen? Look at verse 8 with me. He says, it's for by by grace you have been saved through faith. That this being made alive in Christ is received by faith. And faith is this word in Greek that is the same word as trust. Um, And at church on Sunday, um, we go to Redeemer Presbyterian Church and... um, our pastor Giorgio was preaching on faith and he brought Leo, our seven-year-old son, up to help with an illustration during like the children's sermon part. And so he had Leo do a trust fall in front of the church um, to show, which is great because Leo had never done trust fall before. And um, if you ever watch a seven-year-old fall over, you don't know what's going to happen. But Leo fell great. Giorgio caught him. Um, and I just love that image of 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 Leo, my son, falling backwards into the arms of someone he cannot see and trusting that he will catch him. And that's faith. So when you, 
when you ask the question of yourself, where do I want, where do I want my life to go from death to life? Where in my life am I tired of walking in death? Where in my life is my man-made religion wearing me out? Jesus invites you to fall into his arms and that he will lift you up because he longs to show you the riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you um, for your gospel that you give to us in Ephesians that um, we are to cheer up for we are far worse. Our sin is far worse than we could ever imagine, but that in Christ we are far, far more loved than we could ever dare hope. Um, I pray for my friends tonight as they receive this. Um, Lord, for those of us who are confused, those of us in disbelief, those of us who are just zoned out, and those of us who are thirsty, um, would you meet us? Um, Jesus, thank you that you are home who has come to find us. Amen.